Welcome to Euclid Church. So I've been walking the streets a lot recently, uh, trying this winter to rely on my own feet and learn to navigate the city at the speed of someone walking around. And the things you see walking in downtown Hamilton are um, entertaining and troubling at points, but never boring, never, uh, never a boring day. And of all the things I've seen, the one that sticks with me most is something that's so common I see it every day. And that's passing by um, a restaurant, people eating and smiling and usually looking a little uncomfortable, if I'm being honest. It always looks a little uncomfortable in restaurants these days. We're all figuring out how to do this again. Uh, and then seeing right outside that window someone sleeping or huddled around some small source of heat or comfort trying to survive these harsh winters. And the contrast between the two keeps impressing on me more and more. And I want to say that I don't think that either of these groups have done anything particularly wrong. People that are going out to eat are people that want to support small businesses and want to support the industry as it tries to find its way through this storm. Uh, people who want to gather in person with others and eat and drink and laugh and feel that sense of connection. Those who are trying to survive on the streets are trying to do precisely that. They're trying to survive trying to stay warm, trying to stay connected with at least one or two other people, if only for their own safety and to protect their stuff, their little remaining stuff. And so this isn't about individuals, per se, but it's primarily about who we are right now. Who is Hamilton? Because we, we manifest, to use kind of classic Christian language, we bring into body who we are. What we allow in our streets, what comes up organically, especially in the lowest and most vulnerable places, which is many of the streets right around us, we see emerging what truly is in our city. And what we see manifesting is a city where some have the means to eat and feast and dine and some are unable to find a place to sleep. And the gap between the two seems to be growing. And whenever I see people in a restaurant, and I'm, I'm curious if you felt this, whenever I see people in a restaurant or like the times I've gotten to go out to eat, I just feel like the whole time we're pretending the world didn't end. <laughs> this is my take on it. Because there's this feeling like, you can kind of see it in our eyes. We're like, look at us, we're eating and drinking, just like we did before three years ago to the week. Look at us, we're just socializing. Life's really returned to normal, but it hasn't. Because the restaurants are empty, because no one has money, because the housing is skyrocketing, except no one seems to be doing well with the changes, except for a, a small group of people. 
The, the towers going up in the sky being built to solve the housing crisis would be unaffordable for me. And I have a, a mercifully, decently paying job and a supportive family. I mean, we are not even trying to solve this problem. We're not even trying to solve this crisis. If we wanted to, if we wanted to, and we got over our petty bickering, we could solve the housing crisis in a couple of weeks. We could. There are empty buildings everywhere, but they're owned by people who are seeing them as investments and costs being driven up. And let me just say, I don't know anything about this stuff. All right? I'm an idiot, and I know we could solve it in a few weeks. So if you're out there and you're not an idiot on these topics of housing and economics and how this all works, I bet you know a way we could solve it in a couple of days. But we don't and it is manifesting who we are. We are a sick city, and we are in a lot of trouble. And the violence we make peace with, the violence of allowing people to be on the streets, the violence of pushing people out of their homes when they can't keep up economically, which is not just among those who are most marginalized. I know many people in this congregation on the edge I know many people in this congregation afraid that they are one renovation away from being unhoused and having to leave their community, their neighbors, their friends, take their kids out of school. These are not people who are not trying to work. These are people doing their best and the acceleration of this system is pushing them to the edge and may push them over the edge. And if that's who we know, in a space like this, as hyper-connected as the church in Hamilton is, what does that mean for those who do not have those connections? Who do not have friends and family and those who can wrap around them to help cover a month's rent as people in this community do for one another? And what is the answer? If we could solve it, but we're not, then the answer can't just be finding more money or building more housing. We actually have what we need right now. The answer to our problems does not lie in some materialist rearrangement, but in a full transformation of the people who live here and the spheres of responsibility that those people inhabit. We're going to be, uh, we'll put a pin in that, we'll come back to it later. We're going to be spending some time in the book of Exodus. There are pew Bibles if you would like to pull one out. I'd encourage you to do so if you would like to. You could also bring a Bible from home, and as I've been saying, if you'd like help finding a good translation, talk to me, and happy to make some recommendations. We're going to be in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, chapter 19. Now, up until this point, the Israelites have been liberated from slavery. They've wandered through the wilderness, being provided for with daily bread, manna from heaven, and quail. They found springs of water to drink from. And now they've been led to a mountain in the region of Sinai, Mount Sinai, which is where they will encounter, for the first time as a collective people, they will encounter their God, who has liberated them from slavery. And the image of the God they will encounter is downright terrifying. 
So we're reading from Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. And it happened on the third day, as it turned morning, that there was thunder and lightning and a heavy cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the ram's horn very strong. And all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought out the people toward God from the camp, and they stationed themselves at the bottom of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was all in smoke. Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord had come down on it in fire. And its smoke went up like the smoke from a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the ram's horn grew stronger and stronger. Moses would speak, and God would answer him with voice. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the mountaintop. And the Lord called Moses to the mountaintop, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, warn the people. Warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to see, and many of them perish. And the priests, too, who come near the Lord shall consecrate themselves, lest the Lord burst forth against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people will not be able to come up Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set bounds to the mountain, set bounds to the mountain, and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down, and you shall come up, you and Aaron with you, and the priests and the people shall not break through to go up to the Lord, lest he burst forth against them. And Moses went down to the people and said it to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how's that for a text? God is your best friend. Oh! The things we tell children, things that are not untrue, but things that are more true than we might assume. God's your friend, always there to answer you when you call. What we should add is, but you might not want to, because God is also um, terrifying. Terrifying. It's almost too much, isn't it, to read this? There's horns going, and the mountains aflame, and the earth is shaking, and as Moses speaks, God responds in voice, but perhaps it almost seems like everyone hears just thunder and the sound of chaos, the sound of, 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 of fear. What's going on here? Well, a couple things. First off, before you encounter reality, 
You've got to prepare yourself. Like, for a moment, think about if you've ever gone to therapy. If you walk into a therapist's office and you're not prepared, you may see things you didn't want to see. If you enter couples therapy unprepared, you're definitely going to see things you didn't want to see. You enter family therapy, group therapy with a group of friends. If you get together with others and you say, let's see what's really going on here, there will be things you did not want to see. That's an encounter with our reality. Now imagine encountering reality. The reality of who you are the reality of the assumptions you've made, the reality of the sins and transgressions you have committed against others personally and as a society, as a collective. Imagine coming face to face with the truth of what you have been manifesting and your own participation in that wickedness and pain. Imagine coming face to face with the truth about who you are that may come in goodness. The grace that may come to you that does not ignore your sin but washes it clean anyways. The truth that comes to you about your belovedness not by pretending that you aren't broken but by seeing your brokenness and wrapping that up in belovedness. To see these things in a group therapy session may be too intense for some people. I know of people that went to family therapy only to have one member of the family throw up their hands and scream at everybody else and storm out. Well, in this ancient world for ancient people who are encountering reality at the highest level, to walk in and see reality as it was would potentially be enough for them to drop dead on their face. And, and here, it's not that God will burst forth on them with his wrath. If you listen to the, the wooden translation, the very literal translation we were using, it's not that God's angry at them. It's like God is almost like a force field. Do you really want to break through this force field? Do you really want to see what's on the other side? Do you really want to encounter something that grand and that severe? If you break into it without doing the pre-work, without consecrating yourself, examining yourself, preparing yourself to be humble enough to receive what you might see, if you just burst in like it's another Tuesday, you might have a psychic break. I don't know how they died. Maybe aneurysms. Pop! Dead. Dead. And I don't think that's such a crazy thing to believe is possible. That to encounter the truth at a really high level, if you've been living an unreflective life, may just be enough to break you psychically. And so God warns them, not because he doesn't want everybody close, but because he knows that we can't handle it. I don't know if I can handle it, Lord of mercy. He says, just let a couple of people consecrate themselves first. Prepare themselves, like going to therapy. Let a couple of people do the pre-work so that as they step into this place of reality, they are prepared to encounter what they will encounter. So if God is terrifying in Revelation, then God is someone to be feared. And I know that like fear of God talk is not super popular these days. It's like, you know, God's scary, but like it's more of a reverent fear. Oh yeah, what's a reverent fear? What is reverent fear? 
Well, it's like when you revere something so much that you're scared of it, so you kind of fall on your face in front of it and you don't want to touch it. That's rever Yeah, that is. Okay, so fear, like just fear, you know. Fear, fear's not bad. Like fear's a normal reaction. If somebody brought in a, a lion that was a friendly trained lion, you'd still be scared of it, right? If there's an eternal spirit that is tying and moving all things together, holding all things coherently, and always, always judging and moving to light all things, that's a scary idea. That's a fair response to the idea of God. But lest you still feel tripped up on the fear of God idea, let me just offer like one thing that I've found is such a short, simple way to feel at peace a little more with the idea of fearing God. Life is scary. Life is scary. Can I get an amen? Life is like beautiful. We get to eat, we get to sing, we get to dance. Life is frightening. We don't know if we'll have enough. There are famines. There are relational breakdowns. There is fear all around us. There is the transgressions of the past coming back and revealing to us our own sins personally and societally. There's the uncertainty of the future. There's the sense that you could die at any moment. And that would be the end of your story. And that is frightening. And there's architecture and light and angles to reality and faces. Like, take a second, look around at the faces. Look around, look around at one another. Life is terrifying in its beauty. And to try to willfully ignore and suppress the fear of life is also to suppress the beauty of life because the fragile nature of our lives is so much of the context for its meaning. So if life is scary and we have some healthy fear and reverence of life, guess who's bigger than life? And if God is bigger than life, then why would we not also have that same reverent fear stepped up one level higher of God? Now, when Moses goes to encounter this God, he does not know what he'll find on the other side of the storm. Darkness and flame and earthquakes, and Moses steps up to the unknowability of God. The darkened cloud that stands between him and whoever the God is that is on top of that mountain. Whatever God's presence has caused this much fear and power and breaking forth is the God that Moses will go to meet. And so Moses prepares himself to meet the God who is truly God, to meet the God who is truly other. Here's the good news about fearing God. If you don't have any reverent fear for God, you are likely not dealing with God. You may be dealing with God. Like your ideas of God, and your ideas of God are nothing bad. Your ideas of God are the collective understanding of all that's been given to you and called God. And that's probably got a lot of good truth in it. But that is not God. 
Ideas about God are not God. Theologies about God are not God. Even others' stories of encountering God is not God. There is a thou, a true thou, a true other, a true you to the me that we experience. On the other side of the darkness, when we pierce through in prayer, when we beat against that cloud and enter into God's presence, there is a real thou who speaks to us beyond and above our ideas of God. And this is good news because so many of us have been taking apart, sometimes carefully and sometimes less carefully, all that we were given about God. And as we've taken apart what we have heard to be true of God, we are finding there are elements of our God who looked a lot like our tribe, our denomination, our parents, ourselves. And to allow those lesser images of God to settle down and, and, and float away allows the image of the God who is God Functionally, God is the highest idea you can hold. And then a little beyond that, and then infinitely beyond that. For God to be God, God must be the absolute highest idea we can have, and infinitely beyond even our understanding. And the grace in this is then, we don't need a quiz to approach God. We don't need to get the answers right. We don't need to know what we are expecting to receive. We only need to believe in faith that this God seeks us and invites us to seek him. To go to this darkened space and to ask the God who is truly God to speak to us in a way that we could understand. And then to experience to experience in your own life, in a way that you can understand what it means to get a response from the abyss. Almost like, uh, what was that old thing they used to do back in the day? Like, do, 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 like Morse code, right? That's, that's my action for Morse code. Do, 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 do. I hope I'm not saying anything like horribly offensive as I do those dupes. Do, 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 do. One person's like, no, no, no. Don't do back to the dupe. Yo. Morse code, right? You're sending a signal out. Perhaps because you've received a signal and you don't even know how to interpret it. But you believe because you've received some sign, some do 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 that if you beat against that wall in prayer, do 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 God may just respond to your response. Not because you see the respondent, not because you even fully know who the respondent is, but because there is a respondent. And I just need to keep saying this because it's so easy in our world to forget it. There is a God. There actually is. I'm not saying this because I'm like a pastor and I need you to believe in God so I like have a job or something. I, like, I can get another job. I'm telling you, there is a God because I have encountered this God. And you might be like, well, that's your experience. Well, what else do you want me to talk about? Like, you know, Okay, it's not my experience. There is a God. 
So much that everyone who experienced it wrote it down and told every generation, whatever you do, tell this story. And then they passed it on and they encountered that God, so they kept passing it on. Whatever you do, tell the story. Whatever you do, tell the story. And then we get it and we're like, ah, where's the proof? <laughs> we're in the proof. We're here because people decided of everything they could do with their time, money, and attention, God is real. And when you pray and beat and call out to that God, He will hear you and answer you in a way you can understand. Done! And that God may be terrifying, but that God is good. Now, we've always had witness that that God is good. The good news is that God has shown us he is good. And not just in our own experience, but in sending his form, his image among us, his son. I mean, it's a staggering thing for these Israelites to spend thousands of years encountering this God and believing that this God who is terrifying is also good, so good, so good, better than you think good, always good, all their experience comes to the end that God is good. But then this God reveals God's self in who? In Jesus. That flaming mountain, that terror revealed in a humble, poor, marginalized man without a place to lay his head, who heals and forgives and eats and drinks, and blesses, and dies, and resurrects. I can hardly believe that that is true, but that is what we have heard. And as we trust the God, apparently behind all that darkness, the God who is ultimately just like Jesus, we learn to not just be afraid, but to be drawn in. We learn that we don't need to seek out God, God has sought out us. That all of the brokenness around us has already been redeemed in Christ if we have eyes to see it and bodies to manifest it. It is finished. Okay, one last thing before we close. The idea that God comes to us in Jesus has for many of us felt like a less terrifying image of God. Like, quick show of hands. Who finds the God on the mountain more frightening than Jesus? Just quick show of hands. Okay, great. So I won't even bother the other way. Like, who finds Jesus more frightening than God, right? Uh, one, one person. Might be more after this little... Because I've been thinking about this. Down at St. Patrick's Catholic Church, just down the street on Victoria Avenue, beautiful parish does more than perhaps any congregation in the city for caring and feeding those right on the edge of our culture and our society. And they have outside of their sanctuary, their building, uh, a statue called Homeless Jesus. Has anybody seen the Homeless Jesus statue before? Yeah, quite a few of us. It's a bench, a park bench, looks just like a pew. And there's a man laying there covered in a robe. 
And you wouldn't be able to tell that it's Jesus except that his feet, which are emerging out from the robe that he's wearing to stay warm, um, are nailed through. They've got the wounds of Christ on the feet. And you can go and you can sit next to this statue. And in the winter, you can put your hands on these cold feet. And you can feel these wounds. And if you do, you may have the same sensation I had, which is that more frightening than the God in the mountain that I cannot see is the God who comes right to me who I can see and who I have failed to help anyways. If Christ truly shows us God, then the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head has nowhere warm to sleep if we do not make a space that is warm for him to sleep. The very image of God, who is frightening and fire, is also huddled up and cold on a bench outside of St. Patrick's. And that scares me more than the mountain. Because the mountain frightens me with what I do not know. But the person of Jesus scares me because I do know. And I know that I have also participated in injustice. And I know that I have turned my eye the other way. And I know that I have made excuses for the sins of our time. And I know that Jesus, were he to wake up from that bench and look me in the eye, would not offer me rebuke, but embrace. Because even in the form of the one who cannot find a place to lay his head, God is merciful, and God is good. Amen.